Well, thank you for the opportunity to be with you. Um, and I got to smile because I know that it, it's sort of like someone who's a dentist would look and say, the crowd looks like a mouth filled with some missing teeth. And we're creatures of habit. We kind of sit wherever we sit, regardless of where the empty spots are, because you have your friendships and the people that you're with and the people that you enjoy uh, fellowshipping with as part of Amen. There was a, a, a mountaineer who lived in Montana, and several years ago she was invited to be part of an international climb in Russia, in the Pamirs, which is a, a mountain range there. And she tells about that experience by saying that when she got to the Pamirs and had all her gear with her, as she unpacked her gear, she found that there were a couple pieces of climbing equipment that were essential for the, for the climb that she had forgotten to pack. And as she saw that it was not with her, she immediately knew exactly where in her cabin back in Montana those pieces of equipment were. Well, among the group, there was a, enough equipment to go around, and they were able to supply what she needed, and the climb was very successful. In reflecting on that experience, she said that some of her Russian counterparts shared with her about this term that was used by early Russian explorers. And I saw the word one time, it's about this long, and it's in Russian, and it's kind of by a vowel, is what it boils down to. I wouldn't know how to pronounce it. But what the word meant was, to sit for the road. And they said that what would occur is that with, uh, with explorers, as they would leave for the day, they would initially sit in a circle quietly, and they would reflect on two things. The first would be, did they have in their pack more than what was necessary for the day's journey? And so they thought through, here's what I have with, here's what I'm carrying. Here are some things that are not necessary. And so by releasing those was the opportunity then to lighten the pack. The second thing they would think about would be, what is it that's necessary today, and do I have that with me? And so in reviewing for themselves what was in their pack, it was the opportunity to add what was necessary, let go of what wasn't necessary, so that they rose for the day. They were ready to face it, fully armed, fully ready with what it is that was necessary. So please remember, I'm a psychologist, so, so humor me, if you would. But, but if you'd take a minute and just sit in your chair, sit up, and just put both feet on the floor, and close your eyes, and I promise I'm not going to leap out at you, um, and just breathe five or six good, deep breaths. And I'd like you to think about your day today. And think about what you're carrying with you right now. And I want you to think about, are there certain things that you're carrying with you inside that are not necessary for the day? It might be fear. It might be worry. It might be frustration. It might be anticipation. Who knows what it might be? But are there some things that you're carrying that aren't necessary? or that you'd like not to carry. And if you take those things and give them to your Heavenly Father, because God will carry those things for you, God will carry those things for us. So what are you carrying that's not necessary? And please, give those to God.
And what does your day hold? What is it that's necessary for the journey today? What do you want to carry with you? What do you need? What do you have with you? But what do you need from God right now that he can give you to help you in the journey that is today? So please think through, what do you need from God in order to face today, to carry with you what is necessary? Father, thank you that you love each one of us and that you are concerned about who we are and that you love us and that you walk with us and that we can rely on your strength and glorious might in the midst of all that we face in this world. We are so grateful for that, Father, and help us on a daily basis to think through how we can allow you to lighten our load and how we can help to allow you to help us carry the things necessary with courage as well as with faithfulness. These things we pray, Father, in your Son's name. Amen. amen. Guys, I, I realized a couple days ago that this week starts my 40th year at being at Christian Psychological Center. And I remember my parents always saying as they were older, it just goes too fast. And uh, my dad was right. It does go too fast. And, and you look up in your life and you go like, how did it get to this point? And I feel lucky that I've been able to do work that for me has been meaningful and that through the years I've had the opportunity and the privilege to walk with many people and many couples and do a variety of things in the community and to be able to use some of the gifts God's given me, hopefully to be able to benefit others. And for me, in, in, in seeing individuals or seeing couples, during my day, each person that I'm talking to is its own frame, because each of us is unique in the things that, in terms of how God designed us, how he wired us, the things that allow us to be resilient, the things that we worry about, those are unique for each of us because of our wiring, because of our life experience. But I just feel very grateful to be able to have done and continue to do the work that I do in that regard. One of the things that sometimes people ask is they'll say, are there certain themes that you've seen that run through the work that you do? Which is really an interesting question, because like I said, each one of us is unique, and the kind of challenges we have are different from person to person. But I really do believe, and it's not true in every case, but I do believe underneath it all, there really are two themes that I hear over and over again. And they're themes that are in the core of my own life as well. And here's what they are. I think on one level, all of us wonder, do we have what it takes? All of us wonder, do I have what it takes? Am I adequate? Can I achieve that which is in front of me? Can I do well? The second theme that I know in my own life and that I've heard as I've walked with others is the question about if you really knew me, what would you really think? And so there are these questions about our adequacy and there's these questions about community. How do we fit? What's our place? Am I really loved? And it's interesting because when you look back, and, and what I want to talk about is from a Christian perspective, how 
how we understand what happened that we get to this place where we wonder about our adequacy, where we wonder about whether or not we're loved, whether or not we belong, and what happened. And if you look back in Genesis, which, uh, which you've covered this already, and I know I'm not going to do it justice, but one of the most amazing verses to me in all of Scripture is Genesis 2, the last verse, where it says that as creation was completed, it was talking about Adam and Eve, and it said they were naked, and they did not feel any shame. So this notion of nakedness is that sense of being fully present. Who I am is who I am. This is how I'm designed. This is who God made me to be. No, 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 no pretense, no defenses, just that sense of wanting to be present. No shame. And that sense of also wanting to know the other person. And that's what we were created for, relationship with God, relationship with each other. And so what we have longed for, what we were created for, is that Genesis 2 world. But our starting point in our lives is Genesis 3, which, as you know, is about where what Satan did was to, was to twist in Adam and Eve's mind whether or not God could really be trusted, whether God was really good. And so we were created as creatures, not the creator. We were cre created to be in relationship with and to draw our strength from how God names us. But what happened was, is that they started to question whether God is good, because like Satan said was, like, you're kidding. It's a beautiful garden, but he's withholding the best thing. And as we know that in eating of the fruit, in the act of that disobedience, which was the behavioral manifestation of not trusting God, that all of a sudden, what God said would happen did. And that was this self-awareness that as human beings, as creatures, we really don't know how to manage. And so at the core, when that happened, the core emotions that you see in Genesis 3 are that feeling of shame and fear, that hiding from God. And I don't know if for you the morning is, is the most beautiful time of the day, for me, it's the evening, you know, that cool of the day. And I grew up in Minnesota, and I just remember as a kid in the summer how, how twilight would just linger and how that felt, the cool of the day. And God met them each day. And when God comes this day, what happens is, is rather than running to meet him, they are hiding because they are afraid. And then you see that they had covered themselves up immediately. And we do. We, 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 we armor up. And sometimes when you think about your own life, you know, how young were you when you armored up? How young were you when you realized, man, I got to be good, look good, because I don't know if who I am is enough, or I don't know if who I am is really, is, 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 is really received. So you have as our starting point that we're hidden, we're afraid, we have anxiety, we have this sense of desiring to be connected, but there's many things that can get in the way. And so what I want to just for us to think about this morning is really about two things. One is about grace, and the other is about mercy. And in this room, there are some of you that are so much further down the road than I'll ever be in terms of being able to understand and to appropriate God's grace and to be able to celebrate and feel so grateful for his mercy. But for all of us, being able to understand those two concepts 
and be able to live those out experientially changes everything. And for me, if you think about it from this point of view, like a tile job, you know, like laying tile on a floor, laying tile in a bathroom, do you know what the key is to laying a really good tile job? It's hiring the right person. No, no. <laughs> the key to a tile job is that the first tiles are laid right. Because if the first tiles are laid right, the whole job runs off of those first tiles. And I think when it comes to our own health, when it comes to our own personhood, those essential first tiles laid right have everything to do with grace and have to do with mercy. And what I want to do today is just read through some biblical passages about those things and talk a little bit about our defenses and, and finish with, with this, that, that, that Paul says in Philippians, he says, look, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God's at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. So understanding what that means for each of us, because that's different what our paths are. But what is, we hold in common is the fact that in a Genesis 3 world, God has continued to move towards us with his grace and with his mercy. And the more we can understand that, the more we can live this much freer life. So John 1 which really explains what it is that we were talking about when it comes to um, this notion of, 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 of what happened for us in this world, in the fall. And it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything made, was not anything made that was made. And it's saying, listen to this, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So we have on the other side of the fall, where there's a separation, we have Christ coming who is the one who created life and the one who gives us life. And then John says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And this is just the crazy thing. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father. And then here's the key. And Christ is described as being filled with grace and truth. And so this notion of grace is this notion about being loved. And it's this notion of a spontaneous gift that God has given, where he moves towards us. And sometimes we think, well, yeah, I mean, God is love and God's grace, and he has to love me because that's who God is. But that notion about knowing that you were created uniquely, I am loved uniquely by God. All of us have this sense in which he moves towards us, and he wants us to understand that regardless of 
how we view ourselves. He named us, and he wants to claim us back for his own. And so we have these verses, like, for example, in, 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 in Ephesians 2, where it starts by talking about us being dead in our trespasses and sin. And then starting with the fourth verse, Paul says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he made us alive with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages, he might know the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. And then he says that most familiar of passages. He says, so by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not the result of works so that none of us can boast. And then over in Romans, Paul says that, that while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. And sometimes when we think about our relationship to God, there was a retreat that I had an opportunity to participate in several years ago. And there were about 30 people, and they were all believers. And one of the things that I asked ahead of time for people to write about in order to kind of understand the group, in order to share, because they wanted to talk about God's grace and God's love, is, is a series of questions. And one of the questions that was on the survey was, um, what do you believe in terms of God's grace? And people were very right in terms of how they defined that theologically. But a second question that I asked was asking, how do you feel that God feels about you? So we have our theology, which is what we know about God. And then, like one author said, we have our neology, which is how we feel that God feels about us and how we feel about God when we're on our knees praying. And it's so interesting because 27 of the 30 people who responded said that they felt really mixed about how God felt about them. Because it was like, you know what? I have this sin pattern, and it still continues. Or despite my best effort, you know, I try to get it right, and I just don't. And from a human perspective, we do get tired of each other. From a human perspective, we wonder if we deserve just to be kind of set aside. But again, what we know is that God's grace and his mercy is given to us. And that in the midst of all that goes on in our life, he is there and he loves us and that does not change. And so over in Colossians 1, Paul has not known these people personally, but he prays for them. And in Colossians 1, 9 through 14, he says the most interesting thing. He says to them that, he, that from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And he says that so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. And I remember one time reading that, and it says, Paul says he, he's praying that we'll follow God and that we will please him. And all of a sudden, stopping there, it's like, okay, what is Paul going to say that pleases God? And you know, if we had time, it'd be interesting to think for yourself, and maybe you can think about it later, about how do you think God is pleased? What do you think it is that you need to, need to do to please God? And Paul follows by saying there's a colon, which again, or a semicolon, which again, is in our English Bibles. And then Paul says there's these four things that please God. The first is he says that God is pleased when we bear fruit in every good work. 
So God is pleased when he sees us grow, when he sees us being able to mature, when he sees us bringing about the shalom, bringing about the peace. That pleases God. Second of all, he says that God is pleased when we increase in the knowledge of him. And the knowledge here is not the theological understanding, although that's part of it, but that sense of a desire for a relationship with him. And then the third is so interesting, because it says that God is pleased when we're strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And so what God is saying here is he's saying, I'm pleased when you recognize that on your own, you just can't figure it out. On your own, you can't be all that patient. On your own, it's very difficult to persevere. On your own, it's very hard to know, how do I deal with these difficult people? And so God is saying, rather than get dressed up and come to me, he said, come to me and let's talk about it. Because my strength, my glorious might, let me walk with you. Let me be part of your backpack. Carry me with you today. Let me help to transform you. So again, rather than being good, making good, kind of dressing up and then going to God, he's saying, come to me. Because the reality is, I love you. And I understand the brokenness. And I'm here for you. And then the last thing that he says, which is so amazing about what pleases God, it says, he's pleased when we give thanks. Okay, but give thanks for what? Listen to what Paul says. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In other words, we're in. And if we know that we're in, that changes everything. If you go down to Destin or Gulf Shores or somewhere like that, and you go down and there is a condominium high rise that's being built, and you go up on the 12th floor and it's under construction, and you go out and, 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 and there's the sliding door out onto the, the pad for the balcony, and you look out that door, and the pad is there on the 12th floor, but the railing has not been put up yet, okay? Are you gonna go out on that pad, okay? Some of us wouldn't, some of us might. But if you went out on that pad, you would literally stay very close to those doors, and you'd be very fearful to risk going to the edges. But if you came back a couple days later, and the balcony and the railing was up, would you go out on that balcony now? Yeah. And you'd go over to the edge, and you'd look over, and you'd make sure the balcony was, the railing was secure. You'd look over and scare yourself. But then from then on in, you'd use the whole balcony. And in the same way, what, what, what Paul is saying is, if we know that our inheritance is secure, it's like having that railing. We don't have to live day to day fearful about whether we're going to fall off the edge. And we can live a more robust life because we know that in God's grace, he's got us. And he knows that we're broken and he knows that we sin and he knows that we screw stuff up. And his anger is not about, God's anger about sin is because it breaks the shalom, it breaks the peace, it breaks things as they were intended to be. And there's a really interesting quote by this one Greek Orthodox priest that says that Satan is not all that concerned about our sin. What Satan's concerned about is that we focus on our sin rather than focusing on Jesus' love and grace. So that when we are off-center, our desire of moving back into relationship with God is in terms of being able to move to being more and more fully human the way that he intended us. Now, all of us, you think about this for a second. 
we, we live in a culture where it's like be good, make good, right? And so all of us think about, like for example, think about if you're a, a husband, or think about if you're a worker, think about if you're a friend, or think about your role at church. The different roles you have, all of us think about this. As a, as, as a friend, I want to be the kind of person who what, okay? And so for all of us, there are certain values we hold. I want to live out being a friend in this way. Or when it comes to living out my faith, I want to be this kind of person. Now, most of us, when we reflect on ourselves and how we're doing with that, the next thing we go to is we say, and here's how I fall short. Here's how I need to change. Here's where I mess up, right? But there's a very different sequence that God wants us to go through in thinking about that. And that is when we look at, here's the person that I want to be. Here's the wiring I have. Here's my life experiences. Here's how I want to live out my faith. Here's how I want to be light and darkness. Here's how I want to be the kind of person God calls me to be. When we define that, the thing that God wants us to look at is to be able to say to ourselves, here is how that's true about me currently. In other words, that's healthy pride. I want to be this kind of person. And by God's grace, here's how I am. Here's how I've grown. And so when we take a look at where we fall short, when we take a look at where we need to change, then it's about change to be more of who we know God is calling us to be. Because that railing is secure. We are loved. We are in. We're part of the inheritance. And so again, I want to be the kind of person who, and here's how it's true, and celebrate that with each other. Celebrate that with God. So often for us as men, when we get in accountability groups, we think that the focus is let's talk about where we screw up. And that is important to have a place where we confess our sin. But the other part is to celebrate where God is at work. And that is healthy pride. So that then when we say, here's where I'm messing up, the key isn't like those 27 and all of us is like, oh man, I screwed up. Why does God even care about me? That's our shame. But rather to say, okay, I feel badly about this because that's not who I want to be. That's not who God calls me to be. So I need then to confess, I need to repent, I need to make it right, and then I need to get on with it because we're loved. So we're qualified. He then also says, give thanks because he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of light, which is the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Some of the work that I do, um, apart from the center, it, it involves some work that is doing training with uh, uh, humanitarian aid and development workers that are going to be in high-risk environments. And over the last 10 years, as I've been involved in some of that, there's been a huge shift of humanitarian workers responding to natural disasters versus now responding to disasters that have involved human evil. And so in that process, humanitarian aid and development workers are also no longer neutral they're at risk. And so those that are going to these higher risk environments are people who then go through this training in order to learn what do I do if this happens, if that happens. And so it helps to increase their awareness and know what to do if bad things happen to them. Much of the course, in terms of the scenarios that they go through, are led by folks that are, for example, ex-Navy uh, ex SEALs or ex-Rangers. Uh, men and women who've been involved on that whole side of, 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 of taking care of us. And it's so fascinating to me to hear the stories of all the things that happen behind the scenes that we have no knowledge of that keep us safe, that allow us to live as we live, 
because there's others that are behind the scenes that are making sure that that's, that happens. And so again, we give thanks because we've, we've been delivered, that that work is being done. And so we can live in God's grace in that way. Lou Smeads wrote this book called Shame and Grace, Healing the Shame We Don't Deserve. And here's what he says about grace. He says, most people who experience grace, if they experience it at all, experience it in one of four or more, in one or more of four levels. And so here's what he says about grace. He says, we experience grace as pardon. We're forgiven for wrongs we've done. Pardoning grace is the answer to, to guilt. God forgives us with his grace. Second of all, he says we experience grace as acceptance. We are reunited with God in our true selves. We're accepted, cradled, held, affirmed, and loved. Accepting God's grace is the answer to shame. We experience grace as power. It provides a spiritual energy to shed the heaviness of shame and in the lightness of grace to move towards the true self that God means for us to be. And then finally, he says that we experience grace as gratitude. It gives us a sense for the gift of life, a sense of wonder, and sometimes elation at the lavish generosity of God. And that's it. That's what I want to remind us of this morning, is that God's grace is there. And we are loved. And we are held tightly in his hand. As you know from Romans, it says there's nothing that can separate us from his love. And we need to remember that. The other thing, though, that we see in, in John 1 is that it says God, that Jesus is filled with grace, but also filled with truth. And the truth is of our human condition that by our own efforts, we can't really be adequate. We can't really grow. We can't really be the people that we were created to be. And it's interesting because going back to the tile analogy, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, and the Beatitudes, how fortunate you are, how lucky you are, how blessed you are, the first Beatitude says what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now the question is, how in the world are we blessed if we're poor in spirit? Because literally, poor in spirit means in some ways we have poverty of spirit. And what is poverty? Poverty is not the fact that our vacation got canceled or that we weren't able to do this, that, or the other. Poverty is a situation in which something essential for life we are not able to provide for ourselves. That's poverty. And so the first tile laid is saying, guys, you are blessed. We are lucky when we understand the poverty of our spirit, that despite our best efforts, there's a gap between our efforts and the outcome. And that poverty, I think, that Christ is talking about takes place on three levels. One is that if you think about it, the most important things literally are outside your control. Okay? There is a 99.9% .9 chance that when you leave here, wherever you're going to go, you're going to get there successfully and safely and get home. But I spoke at a grief support group last night, and there were a number of people there that a loved one who they were connected to didn't come home. There was an accident, there was a heart attack, something happened. At the end of the day, you can't control your reputation. At the end of the day, you can't control the economy. At the end of the day, things that are important for you, they're out of our control. 
Second of all, poverty is that everything we have is a gift. It was given to us by God. The opportunities we've had, the successes we've had, the things that have gone different ways for us. And so we have to understand that while we have taken the gifts he's given and developed those, which we're called to do, we have to remember with gratitude that he's the source of those gifts. It's interesting because there's a, a, a fellow who was the first blind person to climb Everest, and um, Mount Everest, and, and um, it's interesting because there's a, I, I heard the guy speak who was the guy responsible for putting the team together to get him to the summit. And there's a picture from Time Magazine of this fellow, who, who the blind person on the rope going up the mountain. And the guy was so funny, who was doing the talk. He says, you know what? He says, see that, see that rope? He said, do you know who's right here? Again, out of the frame from the Time Magazine. He goes, that's me. He said, I'm right next to him. He said, why couldn't they have used a wide angle lens? But it was fascinating to look at the blog of the blind guy, because early on in the blog, it was about what I did. And then I think, I think some people maybe talked to him about that, because it moved to, here's what we did. And then you know where it moved in his blog? Here's what was done for me that allowed me to get where I got. And so he moved from me to the gratitude of what had happened with the team making it take place. Yeah. That's the second thing, is that gratitude, because we didn't make it happen. God did. And the third part of poverty, look, none of us live up to our own standard, let alone God's, right? Not even close. None of us say we're husband of the year. None of us say we're father of the year. None of us say we're employee of the year. None of us say we're churchman of the year. And see, the thing is, is that in my world as a psychologist, there are these things called psychological defenses. In other words, we, we use rationalization or projection or we do this or we do that or do the other. In order to do one thing, to not feel that sense of inadequacy, to not feel that sense of emptiness, to not feel the fact that indeed we don't at the end of the day have what it takes. At the end of the day, we do have poverty of spirit. There was um, uh, a Catholic priest named Henry Nouwen, which some of you may know that name, um, and he did a lot of writing about our relationship with God and, and the intimacy of our relationship with Christ. And he was quite famous in his writing, in his lecturing, in his speaking. And he was for a number of years at Notre Dame, and then he was at Harvard, and then he was at Yale. And then he recognized in his own spirit that he was really good at what he did, but he also had lost, he felt, his first love. And so what happened was, is he left the academic community, and he moved into being priest at a, 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 a program for uh, mentally challenged and developmentally challenged adults in Toronto called Daybreak, which was part of a network of these types of houses around the world. And he was asked, and in going into that, that everything he knew, everything that, 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 that he was brokering on, none of that made any sense. None of that, when he came into the community, meant anything to any of them. And so that notion of being present to being himself and not brokering on all these other things and being part of that community of ministering to, but being, to ministering to them, but being ministered to as well. And he got asked before the turn of the century to speak to a group of clergy on what leadership would look like into the next century. 
And he wrote a little book from that called uh, In the Name of Jesus, Reflections on Christian Leadership, which is really a phenomenally good book. And he came to that and he said, I don't know what it looks like. But he said, I know that in leadership, I know as people, I know as Christians, we have these three temptations because these were the temptations that Jesus had as well. And so he used as his text for part of what he taught, uh, it, it, what he did in a series of lectures to that group, he used the Matthew 4 passage, which was this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered them, it's also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. When Nowen talked about that, he said that there are three temptations that Satan put in Christ's way, and they're the same temptations for each of us. The first, of turning stones into bread, he said is that temptation to be relevant. The second temptation about throwing yourself off and having the angels catch you is our temptation to be spectacular. And he said the third of I'll give you all the kingdoms is that temptation to power. And as he talks it through, we think in our own lives that notion about wanting to be useful, wanting to have the right answer, wanting to feel like what we do makes a difference. It's amazing in my own life and the lives of others, of friends, of people I've walked with, how many times we say, I don't know if I make a difference, or I don't know if what I bring to the table is really much of anything. Again, that question about adequacy. And yet the interesting thing is, is what Nowen is saying is, if we define ourselves by our relevance, what we bring to the table, and you know what, also, as we get older, like for example, uh, Claudia and my two sons are in their 30s, and what I've come to realize, as many of you have realized as well, is we see ourselves as people, and they see us as parents who are aging. <laughs> it's like, wait, stop it. <laughs> I don't want to be looked at that way. But there's a sense in which, how do we stay relevant? What does that mean? And we worry about that. But see, what now I'm saying in that is that our temptation to be relevant is this notion of trying to define ourselves by being useful. And there's some writing that's done about pride versus the sin of pride. And in many ways, this desire to be relevant really ties in with the pride of vanity, which is the most, um, which is the most uh, vulnerable of prides. Because in vanity, how I'm doing is based on how you think that I'm doing. And so if too much I'm trying to be relevant, it's like, am I doing okay? Am I coming across all right? You know, again, it's not that I like this shirt. It's I worry about, do you like this shirt? And so in vanity, we need others to validate us. And we often then are comparing and contrasting where we fit against others. So internally, 
we end up feeling adequate or inadequate, whether our idea plays, whether somebody follows up with us, those kinds of things. The second in being spectacular is that temptation again to be the person that everybody looks to, to be that person where it's just, wow, look at what he's got, look what she's got. And so in terms of pride, vanity is the kind of what do people think about me? Conceit needs an audience too. But conceit is a much more competitive kind of pride. It's about, I've got the best ideas. It's about, yeah, okay, you do that, but let me tell you what I do. Yeah, that's interesting, but let me top your story. And so in conceit, we still need an audience, but we're competing. We're always aware, am I above or below? Where do I stand? What's that look like? And we find our ways to drop this into the conversation, that into the conversation. And so we end up getting caught up in, 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 in that competition. And then the third, that desire for power, is that sense of wanting to control circumstances, others, those kinds of things. And the kind of pride that's talked about with that is arrogance, which doesn't need an audience because those who are arrogant feel like, hey, they're the smartest thing in the room. And so for Nowen, in talking about those temptations, here's how he said we go about managing those. Here's what makes a difference in each of those. So in that need to be relevant, he said what really helps to balance that is what he calls contemplative prayer, that willingness to spend time with God. Did you know that for the Israelites, the day started in the evening, not the morning? And so when they woke up, they woke up to God already at work. We wake up to the alarm clock and to deprivation. What have I got to do today? What's going to happen? Blah, 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 blah. But they woke up. God was already at work. How do I participate in what he's up to? I was one time in South Africa with a group that's kind of the Navy SEAL equivalent for World Vision, who are the ones who go first into responses to decide how they set it up. And as part of that retreat, there was an Anglican priest who was doing the devotionals. And he said in one of his devotionals, he said, um, I want you to think about a person or two that you love to waste time with. And it was so fascinating, it was almost like a movie, because someone immediately said, wait, wait, what do you mean by waste time? You mean somebody we learn from, somebody we grow with, iron sharpens iron? He says, no, somebody you just like to be with because you enjoy being with them. And where he was going with that is that God wants us to waste time with him. He wants us to spend that time. Again, remember what pleased God? That knowledge of him, that growing in relationship. And it is so hard for us to take time just to be with him. We got too much to do. There's not time for that. We're on to the next thing. But part of what helps with relevance is being able to settle in a way that we say, God, what, what's my part of it? What do you want me to do? How can I represent you well today? What is it that I can do to plant seeds in order to continue to promote the kingdom? So for now, in contemplative prayer, wasting time with God. The part about being spectacular, he said, the antidote for that is confession and experiencing God's forgiveness and forgiving others. When we are willing to let our defenses down and understand the poverty of our spirit and look honestly at our own hearts, look honestly at our own behavior, we really see how far we fall short. And that is where God meets us with mercy. That's where God meets us with grace. But that's what humbles us, not humiliates us, but humbles us. There's a model called stages of change, and there's a model called motivational interviewing. And the stages of change model is one that says, how do we change? 
And the first stage is what's called pre-contemplation. That's where somebody's just out of awareness whether or not I've got a problem. And then there's contemplation, which is like, maybe I do, but really it's you. And then it's beginning to look at what's really going on. And so you have this passage where these two people are praying. And in those prayers, uh, here's what happens. It's in Luke 18. Jesus told the parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And he said this, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed this, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat on his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So that notion about being aware but unless we understand grace and unless we understand mercy, we cannot look at our sin. We cannot look at our brokenness because it's too painful. But that's where mercy, that's where grace comes in. And our willingness to stay with eyes wide open, to hear when others give us feedback, to look at ourselves through the eyes of scripture, to not self-justify. Confession, forgiveness. And then in terms of power, the question there, he said, is really looking at theological reflection. It's spending time with these passages. It's wondering about how is God at work. It's understanding your theological traditions. It's trying to figure out what does it mean for us as a church? What does it mean for us as a body? What does it mean for me to be light in darkness? But see, it's a reflection on seeing how do I participate in what God is up to? as opposed to deciding for myself, I know what's best, and therefore, power goes. Think about it for a second. There are people you know that did not finish well. And the question is, what happened? And often what happened are one of these three things, that's seeking to be relevant, that's seeking to be spectacular, that's seeking for power. And all of a sudden, it became about me as opposed to about us. And it became about me as opposed to my relationship with God. So we're out of time, and so let's leave it with that. But, but here's the thing. I want to finish by just reading this passage, which is a familiar one. And I want to encourage each of us to take time to be with God, to take time to listen, and to take time to allow his grace and his glorious might to be able to enter into our souls and to be able to let go of the fear that we carry and our desire to know that because if we know that we are loved and if we know that God has been merciful to us, it changes how we relate in this world and it changes how we relate with others. So this is it. It's familiar, but this incorporates it all. It encapsulates it, and that's Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. 
The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. As a father, and sometimes we just have to put in the word a good father, as a good father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're but dust. As for man, his days are like the grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commands. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the, verse of the, Lord, the voice of the Lord. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Father, sometimes this notion of grace and this notion of mercy seems too good to be true. And we get caught up in all that goes on in this world and all that goes on in the brokenness within us. And Father, help us not to lose sight of spending that time with you to remind ourselves to know through your spirit that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that our future is secure. Father, thank you. And help us as we go from here to look to communicate grace and mercy and help us, Father, to carry with today the things that allow us to do your will. We love you and thank you for your son who you sent, who because of his death, we have eternal life with you. These things we pray in his name. Amen.